So I had an interesting experience researching Ireland, Dave. Okay. <laughs> so typically, uh, just so our listeners know, the way we conduct these uh, episodes is uh, typically you've probably understood that one of us usually carries a little bit more of the episode and the other one intersperses. Sometimes they're really truly 50-50 and sometimes they're 75-25, but Irish home rule I figured would be carried by you, Dave, but I I thought I would do my own independent research. This is what we do. We usually go off and we read different things and we come back and we have a Google Doc and one person types in their notes. Usually you do it first, Dave. And I, I get in there on Friday night uh, yeah, that's and, true. Uh, and paste everything in there before the Saturday morning recording session. And uh, I had a very funny experience because I read three different uh, books. There were hundreds to choose from, but yes. I, I, I asked uh, one of our friends of the show, um, a friend of Cena's uh, named Chris, uh, who's Irish and an expert on Ireland and the Irish left and everything, and he recommended Lyons, who you also um, cool use from occasionally. Yeah, <laughs> and and I got Lyons, and I got someone else on that was on the bookshelf next to Lyons that I thought would be good. Uh, Nicholas Mansurg. I'll tell you more about him. And and I saw Marks and Engels on the shelf, so I had to grab that, of course. Of course you did. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, then I then I I read them over the past two weeks. I, t- I I you know I sometimes have to take a week, an extra week. We don't record every week because I may not be ready every week. So took an extra week to to do this reading. And when I sat down to do my notes, everything that I had prepared to put in, you had already put in. <laughs> so well, that's yeah. interesting because usually we're we're coming at it from slightly different, at least slightly different angles. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, we seem to converge on the Irish question. Yeah. Unlike, say, anybody in <laughs> anybody there, uh, which <laughs> convergence true. seems to be one difficulty. Well, that's so, interesting uh, too because I use different sources than you did. Yeah. I went. I went with uh, Maurice Shock and John Murphy, and then my little uh, history of Ireland in the 20th century. So Lyons, uh, I think his first name is F.S.L. Lyons. He's the professor of modern history and master of Elliott College in the University of Kent. Just Lyons. Lyons, okay. Yeah. Um, 1971. And then, uh, and this was recommended by Chris. It's called Ireland Since the Famine. Mm. I have Marx and Engels. This is a collection of their letters. Uh, it's called Ireland and the Irish question, but it's really just like like letters to each other, letters to other socialists uh, from the 1880s, 90s, whatnot. Um, and then um, the Irish question, 1840 to 1921, a commentary on Anglo-Irish relations and on the social and political forces in Ireland in the age of reform and revolution. So one of those titles, you know. Mm. Uh, 1965, Nicholas Manser. And Nicholas Manserg, I looked him up. Is this how you pronounce it? Probably not, right? M-A-N-S-E-R-G-H. So Nicholas Manserg, uh, he's an Oxford, you know, professor of Irish history. And when you look him up on Wikipedia, you see, like, lots of books on Irish history. (laughs) And then he did his great work of Irish history, and then he did another work of Irish history. So this is, these are people who, who know their thing this is their thing 
So the other thing I, I want, I have, the only other thing I have to add, Dave, is that we read Packenham, Thomas Packenham on the Scramble for Africa. That was one of the sources I kept going to, to see how he wrote about it. And he had this very irritating style that I didn't like <laughs> where he was talking. It was basically like the heroic deeds of these people who were, you know, scrambling for Africa. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he also had this incredible level of detail, right? Like he tells you what they're thinking as they're walking up the stairs to the office and the map that was on the wall and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but he wrote a book about the 1798 Irish uprising. Um, called The Year of Liberty, which I also read. And like that uh, Scramble for Africa book, he talks about meetings. There's a meeting between Wolf Tone, the leader of the Irish uprising at that time, and Napoleon, where, and he just, he writes the dialogue out <laughs> of the meeting. Because he was says. there? And then Napoleon said this, and Napoleon looked down and sighed, and then he t- turned to Wolf Tone and said, we'll do it. whatever. So <clears throat> how they described each other, what they wrote in their notes about each other. So this uprising was really interesting because it was planned to be the uprising that threw off the British and it was Irish. There were Protestants and Catholics involved in the uprising. So this is something that Mansurik mentions, which is, or Lions, one of them mentions that there was a time not that long before when Protestant and Catholic both kind of rebelled against England. And it was on French revolution, Republican kind of principles and it was foiled. Uh, my reading of it was it was foiled similar to the 1857 uprising in India. It was foiled by a lot of superior British intelligence work. They had a lot of spies. They had a lot of traitors. Everything the every time the Irish had some plan, they they always had to go early because it was exposed. They would catch. Um, you know, they would round up, they rounded up essentially the entire leadership just before the uprising was supposed to go. Right. right. And that was a big, uh, big problem for them. And there was, there, there's some stuff in that book about informants and how, you know, you know, this thing that, that you always hear England doing where they, they keep their inform, they, they let stuff happen. They let the rebels do all kinds of dirty deeds just so that they don't expose their informant. Right. So there was a lot of that kind of thing. Um, like the, the Russians. The Russians. Yeah, exactly. The czar, uh, the czarist intelligence. Yeah. So the French did uh, eventually make a landing because that was what Napoleon promised. He promised that he would they were going to the French were going to land. And, and Wolf's tones calculation was, you know, once they land. But the French came really late. The English kind of started disrupting the uprising really early. And so by the time the French arrived, they were pretty easily surrounded. And the best thing they could do was negotiate their own escape, <laughs> you know, like their own mm-hmm. safe passage. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was like a bad lesson, you know, a harsh lesson from the point of view of the Irish movement, which is like an, a failure of an armed uprising. A glorious um, failure. A glorious failure. For it, sure, it's for it's sure. a pretty standard Irish uprising. 
yeah a glorious failure a glorious failure and uh and also like kind of they're on their own you know <laughs> the french oh yeah <laughs> the french were not <laughs> the french didn't live up to to what they hoped um and england so the the history is longer than that though right like uh there's the cromwellian conquest of ireland which is 1649 to 1653 we talked talked about that a little at the mm-hmm. a couple of years ago when we started this uh, mm-hmm. podcast Mm-hmm. Um, but then I, there's the Tudor conquest of Ireland in the 1530s and arguably the Anglo in the medieval times, it was also ruled by the English crown. Right. So, yeah. And, and I'd say that the key, that the key historical episode that sets all of this question up is, uh, 1689. Yeah. So yeah. just a, a brief recap, this is the glorious revolution. Mm-hmm. So the English decided to kick out their king again. They had cut off the head of Charles I. Now they were going to kick his uh, his son, uh, James, off the throne. Mm-hmm. And uh, James fled to Ireland. He had been raising his children as Catholics. That was one of the things that got the English upset. So he went to Ireland and appealed for Irish Catholic help. And they rose for him. Meanwhile, the Protestants settled in the north in places like Londonderry and Belfast, uh, basically closed the gates, shut themselves in and withstood uh, sieges. Mm -hmm. And they were successful in withstanding these sieges because, of course, the Irish Catholics didn't have, you know, heavy artillery or stuff like that. Um, And then uh, William and Mary came to England to become the co monarchs this is william of orange william of orange the dutchman yeah and then william came over to ireland and there was a battle fought at the boyne uh it wasn't a very conclusive battle but it was important symbolically because both kings were present and james lost which meant the catholics lost so james stewart fled to france as the stewarts were in the habit of doing And that left the Catholic Irish, who had supported them all alone, to face the the English and the the new king. So there was another battle fought at Ockram, and the Catholics were heavily defeated there. So you can imagine the celebrations in Londonderry and Belfast. Uh, They decided to remember the occasion by celebrating it every year. And they still do. And they still do. Uh, So in honor of William of Orange, they formed Orange Lodges, Protestants only, and they kept that siege mentality. Belfast and Londonderry got in this mindset where we're an island of Protestants surrounded by, you know, the Catholic hordes, and we have to defend ourselves by monopolizing all of the jobs and all of the political power and all of that stuff. And I mean, this is very Israel, right? And the reason I say this is because I have come to understand Israel as like more of a Protestant um, English project and less of like some kind of Jewish cultural project. And like there's a I, there's a there's a Jewish rabbi who wrote this book where he, he he has like a glossary at the beginning of the book and it says you know Zionism and and then the definition is a Protestant ideology developed in. Oh, really? The 17th century. Yeah, yeah. It's his name's Nathan Rafkin. And it's uh, that's what it continuously strikes me how the the Protestant settlers 
and the whole settler question, especially as we research this almost civil war that happens, uh, you know, in this that we're going to talk about in this episode, is so similar to the the way that settlers and you know the relationship between the settlers and the army and like oh what can we do you know the settlers are so hardcore and we can't you know and and the settlers say that they're they're the ones that are really loyal to the to england israel whatever you prefer. i was going to point out at the beginning of the episode it it's probably not a coincidence that you know the irish question is how it's referred to and mm-hmm. you think of the palestinian question mm-hmm. there are quite a few similar yeah. Yeah, anytime yeah. your your issue is the question, that's probably not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be you don't want to be a question. <laughs> no, an answer would be nice. <clears throat> so yeah. we'll we'll jump ahead to uh, 1801, shortly after the uh, failed Wolf Tone Rising, or and the Year of the French, as it was called, uh, to 1801, when the the British, by this point, we can call them that decided to pass the Act of Union. So they formed the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And that means that the King of England, who's also the King of Scotland, is now the King of Ireland. And that was not popular (laughs) with Irish Catholics, obviously enough. So uh, Irish opposition to this Act of Union was pretty strong and occasionally erupted in uh, violent insurrection. And even as into the 1830s and 40s, they grouped together in what was called the Repeal Association. So 30 and 40 years later, they're still trying to get this act of union repealed. And the leader of that movement was Daniel O'Connell. This is a very, very big name in uh, Irish history. So he wanted to restore the Kingdom of Ireland separate, separate from the United Kingdom. And he tried to do it in a a sort of moderate fashion without breaking the monarchical connection, meaning, okay, we will accept that the British monarch will be the King of Ireland. We just want Ireland to be a separate kingdom, not a united kingdom kingdom so like um so this is this is a thing that keeps coming up in irish history at this time is the they call it one of them one of the important irish leaders called it the hungarian model so it's sort of like austria hungary has the so-called dual monarchy right and so they're they always look to that or at least it was it was one of these uh leaders who had a newspaper and everything i'll try to find him as you're talking but um the other the only other thing I wanted to say, which was like the the year of the French was because of Napoleon. There's always a relationship between what's going on in Ireland and what's going on elsewhere in the world, right? Like, yes, there's always this moment where it's like, OK, we might be able to get something now because of what England is experiencing or, you know, whatever Britain Britain is doing elsewhere in the world or what's happening elsewhere in the world. Right. Right. So O'Connell mobilized the Catholic Irish all the way down to the poorest tenant farmers. Uh, He was he earned the, the, the nickname the Liberator and he got them all the way to Catholic emancipation. 
So after after William and Mary back in 1689, uh, Protestant anti-Catholic feeling got to the point where they passed a whole bunch of laws, including the Test Act. So in order to be a member of parliament, in order to hold office, any office under the crown, like I don't know if they, they counted dog catchers, but any public or civil service job under the crown, you had to take an oath of loyalty to the king or queen uh, of England, but not just as monarch, as head of the church, because they are the head of the Anglican religion. And that effectively ruled out public service for a large part of the population. First of all, the nonconformists, if you are a Baptist or a Methodist or you know, another Protestant sect other than Anglican, you won't take that oath. And Catholics can't either. So you're... I, just one other question. In terms of the oath to the monarch, the last time Ireland had an Irish king was like hundreds and hundreds of years before, yeah? Yeah. Before maybe even like medieval times. Yeah. Gosh, you have yeah. to go back to, yeah, like a thousand years. Because it's from 1100s or 1200s on, the king of Ireland was also the king of England, I think. Well, you had high kings. Yeah. Okay, so first first of all, you had four separate parts of Ireland, four, four right. provinces, really. Right. And each one had a king. Okay. And then one, one of those usually w- became the high king. I see. But when the English came in and took over uh, Dublin and the area around it, known as the Pale, they they kind of upset that system. Right. And then, as you said, they they gradually took over more and more of Ireland. Yeah. Right. So yeah, the last Irish king is a long, long time ago. Right. But what O'Connell's fighting for is just the idea of we are separate. Yes. But yes. he finally also overcame. The, the the test act and the british government allowed catholic emancipation and that meant that o'connell could go and take a seat in the british parliament at westminster he'd been elected twice already but since he refused to take the oath he couldn't sit well now now they changed the oath and he can do it so now you have irish members of parliament in westminster and O'Connell had trouble at home. Obviously, the famine uh, made everything worse. And uh, this is in the later years of his career. Uh, O'Connell had to put up with or deal with a great deal of dissension uh, at home. There was criticism of his political compromises and there was criticism of his uh, system of patronage. And that split the Irish national movement. And O'Connell died in 1847. I I still kind of consider him a success, but there were definitely people who were unhappy with his compromises. Well, from what I read in, in Lyons, uh, he's seen as a success. From his, you know, in terms of a historical figure. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty uphill fight, and he made some progress. So. Yeah. Um, so just to say, 
a couple of timeline points about the famine because the famine's what around that time, right? 1847. 
technically speaking, Canada was still property of England. Canada's independence, uh, I mean, we celebrate 1867, but it's really 1931 with the Statute of Westminster. Because up until then, Canada could not pass a law contrary to Britain's. And also Britain controlled Canada's foreign policy. But, Um, you know, Ireland's saying, hey, Canada gets one, why not us? responsible government right and it's interesting because the famine and the way britain handled the famine was a big factor in why canada wanted responsible government in the first place yeah because they were like we're 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 having to take care of all these people you just dumped on our shores um we want the power to do it (laughs) like we want to be able to decide how we do it so yeah yeah and you said you had a link between uh, uh, Ireland. Another link between Ireland and Canada was all all the immigrants showing up. So we have uh, basically Irish reform movement demanding home rule. And I, I call them reformers because they are accepting the principle of a British king being king of Ireland. Right. We we just want responsibility for domestic affairs. You can still be in charge of foreign affairs and war and all those other things, but this would be a first step, so a, a gradual step. But there were also Republicans, and by definition, they want a government without a king, particularly without a British king, and that means complete independence from Britain. And And if you're a Republican... Uh, I would say the vast majority of Republicans, you realize this is going to have to be a revolutionary movement. You're going to have to overthrow or kick out the British king. And that means by force. So these Republicans in this period were known as Fenians. Uh, It's an umbrella term that includes the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood. And then the Fenian Brotherhood, which was their American affiliate. So by this time, you have millions of Irish living in the U.S. and in Canada. And particularly in the U.S., a large number of Fenians or Republicans. And they're going to send money home, money for (laughs) weapons and other things. And they're going to agitate in the U.S. against Britain. And then they had an opportunity right after the American Civil War. Because of their uh, poverty level, thousands upon thousands of Irish immigrants ended up in the Union Army, right? Rich people dodged or bought replacements to, you know, to stand in for them. But the poor Irish, they ended up drafted into the American, uh, the Union Army, the North. Well, in that role, They uh, got experience with weapons. They got training. And after the war was over, uh, they used that training to carry out a number of raids uh, against British North America into Canada. So they would cross the border and uh, do some damage. And there were were some major Fenian invasions that scared the the living crap out of the uh, British government or the, the Canadian government. Because they didn't have an army capable of meeting them. They needed British troops. So 1866 to 1871, there were quite a few large-scale raids and even an invasion 
by these uh, Irish Civil War veterans, the Fenians. <laughs> yeah, but they were pretty much unsuccessful. Uh, and again, another one of these kind of moments that underscores the armed struggles. Not time isn't ripe for an armed struggle. Let's just say that. Yeah. Kind of go back to other means. Yeah. So meanwhile, yeah, the other means, the the gradual movement, the constitutional movement, and this became the Home Rule League. Their leader was Isaac Butt. The goal was to have a parliament in Dublin with uh, limited legislative powers. And they're going to be opposed by unionists, uh, mostly Irish Protestants. They feared that a Dublin parliament would be dominated by the Catholic Church and that Protestants would face uh, discrimination as a religious minority, which I I think is pretty funny. You know, you've discriminated against the Catholics for centuries and you're afraid that they're going to turn it around and discriminate against you. Well, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, it's horrifying. The idea that they might get treated the way they've been treating people is always (laughs) horrifying to them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then a new leader emerged. This is Charles Stuart Parnell. Parnell was an Anglo-Irish Protestant, but he founded the Irish National Land League in 1879 and then uh, became leader of the Home Rule League. Uh, He had two, basically, platforms. One was constitutional issues, but the other was economic issues. And he was pretty skilled in using... British parliamentary procedure. Now, uh, sometimes he was skirting perhaps a little close to the law, uh, certainly made himself unpopular with elements of the British government. He was imprisoned in Dublin in 1882 and then finally released when he renounced violence. Makes me think of Nelson Mandela, although his answer was different. Uh, He became leader of the IPP. This is the Irish Parliamentary Party. And Irish voters increasingly began to turn away from the Liberals, the Conservatives, and the Unionists to support the IPP. So here's some election results from the the period. 1874, the Conservatives under Disraeli won 350 seats. The Liberals under Gladstone, 242. And the IPP, 60. So with a a majority of that size, obviously, you know, there's not much you can do. In 1880, the Liberals won this time with 352 seats, and the Conservatives under Salisbury only had 247. Parnell by now is leader of the IPP, and they got 63 seats. So it's going to be a fairly standard number like that. But these are two examples of majority governments where the Irish can't influence anything. Most British parliamentarians, if you ask them about the Irish question, they would just sigh and wish that it would simply go away. I don't want to talk about it. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) But Prime Minister Gladstone uh, decided to tackle the Irish question. Now, we've, we've talked about Gladstone before, and he was a pretty strange individual in a number of ways but he had a habit of acting from principle now and again 
and he decided to do it here. He's going to tackle the Irish question with a, a series of measures. And, and like many English, he had mixed feelings about Ireland. He was anti-Catholic. Uh, he was anti-socialist. But he was pro-reform. So there are parts of Parnell's agenda that he can identify with. So in 1869, he finally uh, disestablished the Anglican Church of Ireland. Th this was a surprisingly big deal because the Church of Ireland was Anglican. Only 10% of the Irish population was Anglican. So the official church represents one-tenth of the population. 75% of the population were Catholic, 15% were other Protestants, but everybody had to pay uh, a tithe, a tax, to fund the Anglican church, whether you like it or not. So by disestablishing the Anglican church, that allowed people to pay their tithes to the church of their own choice, of their own denomination. Then Gladstone attacked with the Land Acts. And if, you, if you've been listening to a number of our podcasts, you know that anytime the issue of land comes up, oh boy, people get really, really get their backs up. So in 1870, only 3% of Irish farmers owned their own land. 97% of Irish farmers were tenants. So Gladstone went carefully. He wanted to be fair. But he was afraid to antagonize uh, English or, or Anglo-Irish landowners, many of whom were liberal supporters. So his first land act was, uh, and I quote, a tepid compromise. So the first thing he did is, uh, if you made improvements to your farm and then surrendered the lease, you got compensation for those improvements. Up until then, those improvements had been accredited to the landlord. So that means that you have, as a tenant, you have no incentive to improve your plot of land or house or anything like that. So think of renting an apartment, right? Anything you do to improve the apartment belongs automatically to the landlord. So why would you do it? And then in the long run, that apartment starts to get shabby and run down. And so he's trying to solve that problem by giving tenants credit for improvements. Uh, second thing he did, uh, compensation for disturbances or damages. And for tenants who were evicted for a cause other than non-payment of rent. So if you don't pay your rent, obviously you're going to get kicked out. But if you're getting kicked out because you vote for a particular party or because you expressed an opinion or for whatever whatever reason, then you're going to get compensated. And then the third piece of the Land Acts was uh, what are known as the John Bright Clauses. And Glastone wasn't that thrilled with them. He accepted them kind of reluctantly. What this John Bright Clause did is it allowed tenants to borrow money from the government in order to buy their own land. So the tenants were allowed to borrow two-thirds of the cost of the land 
and repay it over 35 years at 5% interest. So it's a, a bank fund for, you know, helping tenants buy their land. Now, there was nothing in the act that said the landlord had to sell. It's only if the landlord was willing to. Uh, Gladstone might have had good intentions with this, but it, it was a pretty irrelevant act. Fewer than 1,000 tenants used the bright clauses because even with two-thirds being, you know, you're allowed to borrow two-thirds of the cost, they didn't have the other third. They didn't have any money. Plus, landlords wouldn't sell. And your friend Engels found the whole thing amusing. He thought, how could the conservatives oppose such landlord-friendly measures? They they did anyway, but, you know. Uh, I don't know what to think of this. It, obviously, very, very few people took advantage of the opportunity. Oh, it's, they such a, it's such a technical... I mean, you can imagine trying to navigate the website <laughs> that describes <laughs> yeah. how to take advantage of these provisions, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, is there a chat? <laughs> you know, like, is there someone I can call and you're calling and they're busy? I mean, I have no idea how people would have gotten any sense of how to use these clauses. Back well, or you get then. to the part with, so I have to come up with one third on my own. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's not that, that's not gonna happen. to work, right? But yeah. some historians consider this this stuff the the turn of the tide. Exactly. Uh, yeah. A, a mean, first a first step. You've established the principle of the protection of the tenants. That's right, and I think the conservatives knew that, and that's why they don't want to open that up because the minute it's open, you know. Things start yeah. happening, which they did in this case. Yeah, there was a commission, the Bessborough Commission, uh, an inquiry into the impact of the Land Act. This happened in 1880, and, and the report was published in 81. So they found that the 1870 Act, Land Act, gave the tenant no real protection because the compensation aspects could only be claimed when you had given up the, the lease or had been evicted and that meant that if your landlord jacked up the rent <laughs> you have no recourse and they they there was no way to avoid sacrificing what you put into your holdings so the commission declared freedom of contract in the case of the majority of irish tenants large and small does not really exist and then, as these uh, wow, that's a that's a that's pretty a pretty strong. That's, eh? that's fighting words in England, right? I mean, what else do they have besides freedom of contract, really? Right. And then the commission, as British commissions do, uh, made some uh, recommendations, and they recommended by a majority of four to one what were known as the three F's: fair rent, free sale, and fixity of tenure. So fair rent is pretty obvious. Uh, being able to sell your property and not being turfed out for whatever reason. And these three Fs are exactly what the Land League and Parnell had been demanding all along. So it's a pretty another pretty big turn. 
So Gladstone brought in a new a new land act. If if you're if you're trying to count them, there are quite a few land acts. Um, and like the factory acts in the Industrial Revolution, the effect is uh, incremental, slow, but you know each act is a little better. So the new land act has another bright clause with loans for land purchase, but it also includes a right for tenants to go to the land court to argue for reduction of their rent. And this they took advantage of because it was free, obviously, and also because in many cases their rent was outrageous. So apparently most of the applicants who went to land court had their rent reduced by 15 to 20 percent. But that was basically it. So the Land Act, the second Land Act was also uh, fairly ineffective. It, it's also been suggested, I, not all historians say this, but I saw it a couple of times, uh, they, they suggest that Gladstone was trying to undermine the Irish Land League, you know, steal their thunder by sure. taking some of their more popular positions and passing them himself i don't even i'm not even mad about that that's i think what politicians are for isn't it i mean isn't that what yeah sometimes it doesn't matter why they did the right thing yeah 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 but also like that's what the land league hopes for isn't it that the politician tries to steal their thunder by adopting their their policies yeah well yeah in canada our our healthcare system is is still while it's under attack, it's still fairly popular with most Canadians. And I think, you know, many know that even though the Liberal government passed it, that it was an NDP idea. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't matter why they passed it, they did. Yeah. But uh, as I mentioned, Gladstone had mixed feelings about the Irish and he was not happy with some of the turbulence and the disturbances in Ireland. Uh, so in 1881... He established the Irish Coercion Act. Back in back in those days, they had a tendency to uh, give bills honest names, unlike today when it's uh, you know usually it's euphemism, the, yeah, or the opposite of what's intended, right? Like That's the right. Freedom Act, meaning we can arrest you without yes. habeas corpus and things like that. So the Irish Coercion Act uh, permitted the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland to detain people. For as long as was thought necessary. So you simply arrest people without uh, a warrant, without a charge, and you hold them indefinitely. Uh, Because of some rural disturbances in Ireland between landlords and tenants. Parnell and several others uh, active in the Land League were arrested uh, on the charge of sabotaging the Land Act. Uh, as I said, Parnell was released six months later when he renounced violence. And this cost him some support from the most radical Irish and definitely from the American Fenians. But it probably saved uh, the Home Rule League. Because in 1882, you had the kind of incident that can sometimes change the direction of you know, the reform or the progress, known as the Phoenix Park killings. So Phoenix Park is in Dublin. Lord Frederick Cavendish was the new chief Irish secretary, and he was assassinated in Phoenix Park by Irish rebels. And Parnell was suspected of being involved, so he was arrested. 
and they eventually found absolutely nothing to link him to the killings. And he had already disavowed violence. violence. So he merely stood stood by his position and was fairly calm about the whole deal. And uh, Gladstone came away very impressed with Parnell. His composure. Uh, Just to say, like, about the land, just to kind of close out the land discussion for for now. Mansurg, the Oxford guy writing in 1965, his analysis of the 1881 Land Act was that it was it was a genuine step on the road to uh, solving the land question for real. So it wasn't just theater and it was a stepping stone to what he calls. And I think you're going to talk about this, the 1903 Wyndham Act that brought in small peasant proprietorship so they did have some kind of land reform where irish small landholders you know it was it wasn't three percent by the end of the windham act it was significant constituency of small landholders who actually own their land uh after 1903 yeah uh, so but there's this whole thing where he quotes i don't remember who he quotes disraeli or somebody where he says there's no government that's more vulnerable than when they're actually trying to reform after mm-hmm. a long oppression. Mm-hmm. And so that's the that's the kind of thing he says, uh, Mansur says, he says, you know, this is a this is a situation where they are genuinely trying to or, you know, genuinely reforming something after a really long period of oppression. And you uh, governments can rarely survive that, <laughs> which is interesting. interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting. He he kind of comes back to that theme over and over again, where he says, you know, woe to the woe to the government that actually successfully reforms something, because mm. they'll never. You can't you you can't please the constituent the oppressors that were enjoying that are never gonna forgive you, and the the people that benefit from it are also kind of resentful of the long oppression, and they also can. It's hard. It's impossible for them to see it as enough, right? <laughs> it is yeah yeah well 1885 was an interesting year because the election results turned out to be what the home rule league had been waiting for um the ipp won 85 of 103 seats in ireland and they won they won a seat in liverpool there were so many irish uh in in liverpool that the ipp won a seat there and the results were not a majority. The Liberals under Gladstone won 319 seats, and Salisbury's Conservatives had 237. So with 86, Irish support would give either one a majority. So they hold the balance of power. And now they can wait to be wooed by whoever wants to be the government more. Salisbury's Conservatives offered a new land act. They offered a five million pound fund for loans to tenants who wanted to buy land. The loans could be paid back over 48 years and the rate of interest would be fixed at 4% uh, annually. And that made the loan repayments actually affordable. And that tempted Parnell into supporting the Conservative government. But then the Conservatives also passed new coercion measures, and that cost them the Irish support. Salisbury's government fell. Gladstone returned to power in 1886. And 
in the uh, interim, he had become personally committed to the idea of Irish home rule. So as you say, <laughs> beware. He made a famous three-hour speech. Uh, the whole speech is available online. If you if you want to see what 19th century speechifying looks like, and Gladstone was apparently a very powerful uh, speaker, uh, he asked Parliament to support a new bill, the Government of Ireland Bill. And he wanted to base it on the example of Norway, which was technically still under the Swedish crown, but self-governing. It's an awkward example because... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in 1905, Norway actually separated from. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, that's what the Irish are hoping for. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Gladstone is asking for uh, support for his government of Ireland bill. He said in his speech that Britain's treatment of Ireland had been shameful and that it would be better to bestow home rule as a gift rather than have it taken by force in a revolution or by foreign intervention like France or the United States. So basically he's saying grant it with honor now rather than being forced to concede it one day in humiliation. So the bill called for a unicameral legislative assembly. So that's a chamber of elected representatives, one chamber. They specifically did not call it a parliament. So for them, there's only one parliament. This will be a legislative assembly. The assembly would be constituted by two orders. So instead of a separate uh, parliament with elected members and the House of Lords, you know, who are automatically in there because of their aristocracy. Uh, The Irish House would have two orders who could meet together or separately. It would include the 28 Irish peers, so the Lords, plus 75 members elected. The vote, however, would be highly restricted. So (laughs) we're not letting all of the poor tenant farmers vote you know, we're we're going to control the composition of the House that way. And the uh, the Lords could delay legislation for three years, but they couldn't veto it. The English Lords, like the, the Lords in Westminster? No, the Irish Lords. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, so the there will be 28 Irish Lords plus 75 members elected by this highly restricted vote, meaning, you know, or other lords and and gentry so but they are all sitting together it's not like a it's not like the house of commons and the house of lords well that's just the first order okay yeah there's a second order of 204 elected members with a wider suffrage hmm. so these will be your irish you know yeah. mp's yeah. and they would no longer be eligible to sit at westminster They'll sit in Dublin. So basically, huh. an Irish assembly, which would have uh, a little over a hundred members who would be lords and you know landowners and and that group, and then the two hundred and some elected members. But then, then they have power. They have 
power being exerted over them from London and they have no representatives in London anymore. Right. right. But they have yeah. they have power exerted over them in Dublin because executive power would be uh, would belong to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. And his executive government would not be responsible to either order. So you, it's not exactly responsible government. Brit- right. Britain would still retain control over defense, war, foreign affairs, trade, coinage, and the Royal Irish Constabulary, the police, would remain under British control until it was deemed safe to transfer to Irish control. Mm. So this was all Gladstone's work. Uh, he, he apparently isolated himself and drafted the entire thing himself. He didn't consult Irish MPs and he didn't consult his own ministers in the drafting of the bill. Because, yeah, as you can see, there are some pretty significant issues with this idea. Uh, Parnell had a mixed reaction. He said the bill had great faults, but he would vote for it. It's progress of a kind. So he's in favor. Uh, Of course, there were serious riots in Belfast, and many liberals broke with their leader, with Gladstone, including Joseph Chamberlain, uh, who we've heard of before. So Gladstone's party, his own party, is showing cracks over this issue. So the vote for the Government of Ireland bill was 311 for, 341 against. 93 liberals voted against their leader's bill. Hmm. And then parliament was dissolved because the government was defeated and a new election was called. And the breakaway liberals ran under a new banner. They called themselves liberal unionists. So these are from all over England. Yep. And they just have this position against whatever not home rule exactly yet but whatever gladstone's idea of some kind of home rule yeah basically they are taking the position nothing for ireland yeah yeah so in the following election the conservatives won with 316 seats the liberals got 192 the ipp 85 and the liberal unionists 77 so they're uh, almost the same size as the IPP, and they basically exist to cancel the IPP. Anything the IPP votes for, they'll probably vote against. Actually, they agreed to support Salisbury outright. Uh-huh. So you now have a coalition of conservatives and liberal unionists. And this is the first election since 1841 where conservatives won a plurality of the popular vote. So we did an episode back in the... 1830 period with all the reform bills and we pointed out that the british parliamentary system is rigged pretty pretty heavily (laughs) yeah um so that you can win a majority of seats with an absolute minority of the votes and uh this is the first time since 1841 that the conservatives won a plurality of the popular vote meaning more than anybody else not a majority not an absolute majority no biggest yeah, they were the biggest. But they, you know, think of all the majorities they held without winning a plurality. So that's just an indication of how strong feeling was running against um, 
Irish home rule. Giving Ireland something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Parnell was in the center, who was in the spotlight again in 1887. The Times of London accused him of supporting the Phoenix Park murders in 1882. They published a letter, uh, which turned out to be a complete forgery by uh, a man named Richard Piggott. He was a, uh, a thoroughly disreputable Irish journalist. Uh, Parnell requested a commission of inquiry, and that took place. Piggott broke down under cross-examination, admitted the forgery, and fled to Madrid where he committed suicide. So Parnell then took the step of suing the Times of London, and they settled out of court for £5,000, which in the 1880s was a hell of a lot of money. Uh, And after that, uh, on the 1st of March 1890, Parnell entered the House of Commons after being cleared and received a a hero's reception from obviously his IPP members, but also uh, most of the House, including uh, Gladstone, (laughs) leading the uh, applause. So that was a pretty dangerous uh, crisis for for his career. But Parnell did his usual. He stayed calm, uh, looked relaxed and and unperturbed, and that impressed many of his political friends and, and political allies. Um, but while he was personally vindicated, people started to believe that there were links between the Home Rule movement and the more radical uh, Irish Republican Brotherhood and, and their militant actions. Now, he probably could have survived that politically, except for uh, what followed. So at this stage... Uh, Parnell is being called the uncrowned king of Ireland. He's continuing to work for home rule, and he's continuing to work for land purchase opportunities for tenant farmers. Uh, Gladstone at this point said he was one of the best people he had known to deal with. But in 1890, a new scandal broke out. It was revealed that Parnell had had a long-term adulterous relationship with uh, Catherine O'Shea. Her husband had separated from her in 1875, but uh, he didn't divorce her because she was expecting a large inheritance uh, from her aunt. So separated from her husband, she and Parnell had a long-term relationship. She had three children by him. And when this scandal broke, the uh, aunt basically decided, you're not getting my money, and that led uh, O'Shea's husband to come forward and claim that you know Parnell had been in an adulterous relationship. Uh, this is the Victorian era, and while a great deal of Victorian morality was hypocritical, uh, this one was right out in the open, and uh, it blew up. The Irish National League stood by Parnell. Didn't everybody know, like? Didn't everybody know, though? So um, it's really. one thing to know; it's another to have it r- put in your face. Right, right. Uh, so the Catholic Church no longer wanted Parnell as uh, an ally, and the Liberals just found him too toxic because a lot of their support came from uh, nonconformist Protestants, like the Methodists, who were. Uh, much stricter and less hypocritical, I suppose, 
uh, in terms of morality. So Gladstone warned the uh, the Irish National League, if Parnell is still the leader, we're going to lose the next election and it'll be the end of our alliance and it'll be the end of home rule. So Parnell wouldn't give up. He fought to retain his position. The alliance with the Liberals was broken and the IPP were, were now split between pro-Parnell and anti-Parnell types. And then he got a little stupid. He used his position as chairman of, of the party to block any attempts to remove him. Only 28 MPs stayed with him, led by John Redmond. Most of his closest allies uh, deserted him and they formed a new party, the Irish National Federation. Parnell died in 1891 and Gladstone uh, described him this way. Parnell was the most remarkable man I ever met. I do not say the ablest man. I say the most remarkable and the most interesting. He was an intellectual phenomenon. Uh, later liberal leader Herbert Asquith called him one of the three or four greatest men of the 19th century. And Lord Haldane uh, described Parnell as the strongest man the House of Commons had seen in 150 years. And A.J.P. Taylor, historian A.J.P. Taylor, uh, said more than any other man, he gave Ireland the sense of being an independent nation. And then your guy Lyons said that he gave the Irish back their self-respect. And he did this by rallying an inert and submissive peasantry to believe that by organized and disciplined protest, they could win a better lives for, uh, life for themselves and their children. He did it further and still more strikingly by demonstrating that even a small Irish party could disrupt the business of the greatest legislature in the world and by a combination of skill and tenacity could deal on equal terms with and eventually hold the balance between the two major English parties. Right. But Lyons also said that his relationship with Kitty O'Shea was a disaster waiting to happen and that Parnell ended up wrecking the movement he had done so much to create. In 92, Gladstone and the Liberals won a minority government, and he promised and he delivered a second Home Rule Bill. And again, it was all Gladstone, but it was significantly different from the 1886 version. Unfortunately, there were several errors that led to multiple revisions, and things got pretty heated including a fist fight on the opposition benches. Um, and then the bill passed its third reading by 301 votes to 267. So if you're familiar with the British parliamentary system, if the House of Commons passes a bill, it goes to the House of Lords. And this bill was defeated 419 to 41. <laughs> The House of Lords has 460 lords? Yep. It's a lot of lords. No kidding. But it, they, they really only needed a couple. That's a pretty resounding no. So 10 years later, uh, the future liberal leader, Asquith, said what the electorate wanted to hear. Is it to be part of the policy and program of our party that if returned to power, 
it will introduce into the House of Commons a bill for Irish Home Rule? The answer, in my judgment, is no. So the defeat was so resounding and the damage to the Liberal Party was so great that the future Liberal leaders said, are we going to do Irish Home Rule again? No. (laughs) Pretty, Pretty clearly, no. So in 1906, the Liberals won a massive majority. Uh, they won 397 seats, a, a gain of 223. Conservative leader Arthur Balfour was defeated and lost his own seat. And uh, Arthur Ca- Campbell Bannerman became prime minister. So we, we talked about this government before during the episode on suffra- suffragists and suffragettes. Yeah. So they were under significant pressure <laughs> um, from another source. Now, this Liberal Party of 1906 had a number of rising stars, including David Lloyd George, the Welshman, and Winston Churchill. And they wanted to pass some much-needed social reforms and electoral reforms. But the House of Lords, well, you can tell from the earlier vote, was dominated by Conservatives and Liberal Unionists, and they blocked the Liberal legislation. So it's not simply you cannot pass Irish Home Rule. You can't pass anything. The answer is is no, whatever it was. There was an education bill in 1906 that was watered down to such an extent that it became a different bill, and the Liberals dropped it. And several other of their measures were rejected outright. And this led to a resolution. This is, this is getting out of hand. <laughs> this is, this is it, definitely getting out of hand. It sounds a bit like the U.S. today, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Complete. Yeah, no matter what you say, the answer is no. So this led to a resolution in the House of Commons, uh, June 1907, put forward by Prime Minister Campbell Bannerman, declaring that the power of the House of Lords ought to be curtailed. We have to do something about this. It's, it's now approaching a constitutional crisis. In 1909, uh, Lloyd George... Uh, I think he was Chancellor of the Exchequer by then, Uh, he introduced the People's Budget. It had new and unprecedented taxes on the wealthy uh, so that they could fund social welfare programs. Now, it was tradition. You know, the the British Constitution is largely unwritten. So an awful lot of what passes for the rules are in fact just traditions. So it was traditional that the House of Lords did not amend or reject finance measures. But now they did. They rejected the people's budget. So they broke convention. They broke the rules. And that led to the election of 1910. Uh, Asquith is the new liberal leader, and he wanted a mandate from the voters that the House of Lords would simply have to accept. Um they won the election, but they were they were reduced to 274 seats. And that meant, again, they needed the support of the IPP, now led by John Redmond. They had 71 seats. So this is not about Irish home rule. This is about dealing with the House of Lords. And the Liberals need Irish votes. And they got them. The people's budget was passed. And the House of Lords basically had to grudgingly give way. 
You, you rejected this bill. We went to the people. We won the election. And you got to face facts. So now the, the, the goal for uh, the Liberals is to deal with the House of Lords <laughs> maybe a little more permanently. So they they introduced the Parliament Act. And this, this bill would effectively remove the right of the House of Lords to veto financial bills. Completely remove that right. And it would also take away the right of veto over other bills and replace them with a delay for a maximum of two years. So you can no longer simply say no. <laughs> the best you can do is say not now. Yeah. Uh, it also reduced the maximum term of a parliament from seven years to five. There, there are many more significant details in the Parliament Act, but that's basically it. You're taking away the House of Lords power to veto and you're shortening parliaments, meaning that you have to go to the electorate more often. I think it was Kennedy or someone who was writing about this as the emasculation of the Lords. I think this is in, in history known as the emasculation of the House of Lords. Yeah, and, and long, long overdue. Overdue, yeah. So the Liberals met with... Uh, unionist MPs 21 times in order to work out the details. The opposition wanted to protect their power in the House of Lords, but they also knew that this could lead directly to Irish Home Rule. And that, in fact, was, was the deal. The IPP supported the People's Budget, they will support the Parliament Act, and the Liberals agreed to introduce a new home rule bill and which, now that yeah now the lords won't be able to won't be able to, to veto it stop it yeah now just to make sure the liberals wanted or needed a new mandate so they called another election in december and the results were very several uh similar liberals 272 conservatives 271 ipp 74 and labor 42 Huh. And so the liberal unionists are now back in the liberal fold. Is that the idea? Uh, I think they're they're being counted with the conservatives. Ah, they switched that way. OK. Yeah. Now, the issue is, how do you get the House of Lords to accept the Parliament Act, which would severely limit its powers? So how do you get the victim to agree to emasculation? Um it had been done before, or at least threatened before. And the way to do this is through the king, because the king has the power to create new lords. Yeah. I can create as many lords as I want. Yeah. So that threat alone had made the House of Lords give in before. <laughs> yeah, they better. Yeah. So King Edward VII had died in May of uh, 1910, his, his successor, George V, was asked if he would be willing to do this, to create new new peers, or at least threaten to create new peers to is get the, the guy who Lords. Is this the guy who has to make the speech? And there was that movie yeah. about him and the speech? Yeah. yeah, he didn't want to appear in public at all. He also didn't want to take sides in this issue. I mean, in his heart, he's with the conservatives, but he knows 
that if he refuses, it'll look like he is uh, playing politics, that he is, yeah. you know, uh, stabbing the elected government in the back. So he agreed, okay, I'll make new peers if I have to. So with the threat of this hanging over their heads, the House of Lords passed the Parliament Act by a vote of 131 to 114. Oh, that could have made it a little closer even. Wow. Well, and you noticed before, this is <laughs> maybe a third of the lords who, who can vote. Yeah, yeah. So they, many of them just decided, you know, out of disgust not, not to show up. Yeah. Yeah. The House of Lords passes the Parliament Act, and then what happens, Steve? Well, <laughs> now the price has to be paid. So the yeah. Liberals got their people's budget through they have now tamed the house of lords uh, to a certain degree anyway and now they have to pay back the irish party and that means they have to introduce a home rule bill uh, asquith had always been lukewarm about it so was gray the foreign secretary and haldane uh, the secretary for war Churchill and Lloyd George uh, saw it as a tiresome anachronism blocking social reforms. So in a sense, they figure, let's get this Irish stuff off the agenda, get it done, and then we can go ahead with much more important things. And, and they're feeling, you know, it's much the same as the men of 1886. If only there was no Ireland at all. <laughs> right. Which reminds me of your... You know, uh, our previous comments about university professors, right? University yeah. would be so awesome if there were no students. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the liberals went ahead, <clears throat> but uh, wearily. <laughs> There's no uh, real energy or enthusiasm for it. It's like, oh, we got to do this. The Irish nationalists uh, weren't fooling themselves. They knew the liberals very well. But there's a suggestion that they overestimated their own uh, power their own influence they could force the liberals to go ahead but they didn't have any control over the details right they're not in cabinet this is not a coalition meanwhile the unionists the conservatives and the liberal unionists were uh, this is according to uh, maurice shock in a state of greater frustration impotence and rage than any other party of modern times now, he wrote this in 1969, so he's not experienced <clears throat> uh, modern American Republicans or, or yeah. even Canadian conservatives. Um, but, yeah, that's quite I found that quite a statement. Uh, most of the unionists are conservative and the rest, remember, are these liberals who had split with Gladstone in 1886 over this very issue. Yeah. Uh, they represent most of the old ruling class and most of the wealth, both you know, the, the landed uh, gentry and the commercial interests. <clears throat> so and, they have a lot to lose in that sense. Oh, and they're horrified by what just happened. The Parliament Act opens the prospect that any future government with a majority could threaten their property. And even worse, <laughs> the social order. Yeah, yeah. Right? What's next? Uh, George Isn't that what, so again, I, I just wanted to say right now <coughs> that nobody at this time believed that democracy 
existed or was a good would be a good thing right no. like this is this is exactly their point which is if we had if we just let the people decide god knows what they might decide we have to right the system it, <clears throat> the system is thoroughly rigged yes. with the first past the post and the division of the constituencies on an unequal basis so that even though the conservatives i i think we mentioned it recently yeah. only once did they win the popular vote but they still have you know, a regular lock on power. And then they have the House of Lords behind them to guarantee that nothing, yeah. nothing bad's going to happen. Well, uh, George Wyndham, this is a conservative member of parliament, founder of an imperialist magazine called The Outlook, and a close friend <clears throat> of your friend Cecil Rhodes. Oh, God. Uh, in 1910, he wrote, the Tories and the king together have the money, the army, the Navy and the Territorials, all down to the Boy Scouts. Why then should they consent to a change in the Constitution without fighting? Yeah. <laughs> and I think, oh, okay. Um, well, there's this thing called democracy. Maybe you <laughs> heard of it at some point. Boy, we have the money, the Army, and the Navy, so we should not allow anything. Well, it's also, yeah, it's also interesting in a context of uh, the Socialist International and their whole point is you guys can't do anything if the workers don't work, right? So, mm. yeah, but I guess Wyndham may not have been a close follower of socialist arguments at that at that exact time. <laughs> so the, the unionist leader, Arthur Balfour, uh, resigned at this point. <clears throat> is that our, that's not our Balfour. Uh, that's the first one. Okay. He's not the Declaration Balfour. I think that, isn't that David Balfour? Oh, <laughs> I'm gonna look it up. <laughs> All right. You well, meanwhile, let me introduce his successor, Andrew Bonner Law. Who, by the way, in the literature that I'm reading is, uh, is, um, known as the Canadian. Yeah, he was born in New Brunswick. Yeah. But, I mean, he's, he's of Ulster Scottish heritage. Uh, and he's a Presbyterian. This uh, is our Balfour. This is our, uh, Arthur Balfour. It's the same guy? Yeah. Yeah, he made a comeback later, and I, I can't yeah. remember the circumstances. We'll have to look it up. Yeah. Uh, so more on Balfour later on. Much more, obviously. Mm -hmm. So uh, Andrew Bonner Law was a compromise choice. There were two other candidates, Walter Long and Austin Chamberlain. So Austin Chamberlain is the brother of uh, Neville, I think. There are plenty of Chamberlains running around. So those are the two front runners, but they agreed to uh, withdraw their candidacies rather than risk splitting the party. So Bonner Law came in as this compromise choice, and there's a really interesting comment on his uh, oratorical skills. Apparently, they consisted of little more than rude assault and battery. Yeah. Oh, my God. The, the, the amount of stuff that both uh, my sources, Nicholas Manser and Leon's <clears throat> or Lyons, talk about Bonner Law, he was just a brute. And, and uh, you know, people were like kind of intimidated just to to be in his presence, basically. He was well, he, so... he would fit in today perfectly, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there was also there's also like a transcript. I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to find it, but I think he's talking to someone in Parliament. And uh, and the person he's talking to is like, I guess I see this is the new way we talk to each other or something. He said something like that. <clears throat> like, right. Seems so... like the new way of, of behaving uh, 
is working out well or something. He made no effort to hide it. Uh, uh, February 1912, on the way to hear the king's speech, he was walking beside Asquith, the prime minister. And Bonner Law said, I am afraid I shall have to show myself very vicious, Mr. Asquith, this session. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. that's it. Nice. Uh, Asquith wasn't too worried, and he wasn't in too much of a hurry. The homeroom bill ended up being much the same as the prior ones. Purely Irish questions would be transferred to an Irish parliament, while anything... Dave, let me interrupt. I found the transcript, okay? The Prime Minister. This is uh, Asquith moving to introduce the third Home Rule Bill, uh, uh, April 11th, 1912. Um, And he quotes, when Asquith moved for leave to introduce it, he quoted in protest a passage from one of Bonner Law's more recent utterances. The present government turned the House of Commons into a marketplace where everything is bought and sold. In order to remain for a few months longer in office, His Majesty's government have sold the Constitution. So the Prime Minister says, am I to understand that the right honourable gentleman repeats here or is prepared to repeat on the floor of the House of Commons? And Mr. Bonnerlaw says, yes. And the Prime Minister says, let us see exactly what it is. It is that I and my colleagues are selling out our convictions. And Bonnerlaw says, you have not got any. <laughs> and, then, and then the prime minister says, "We are getting on with the new style." Jeez, <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm old enough to remember a question period in the House of Commons, Canadian, obviously, uh, being uh, sometimes entertaining. Right. And now it's just schoolyard comedy yeah garb yeah bad comedy routines yeah yeah okay so the homeroom bill comes in uh purely irish questions transferred to an irish parliament anything touching the crown the army navy foreign policy war and new customs duties would all remain with the british parliament in westminster (laughs) but but this time it would still contain irish members so Asquith introduced the bill quietly. He was prepared for a storm of opposition, and then he was prepared to wait for it to die down. And if there had to be a compromise over Ulster, some kind of, you know, some kind of compromise, he knew that his Irish allies would have no choice but to accept it. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Ulster is the stumbling block right, right out the gate. And I think what... Uh, what most everybody didn't understand at first, I mean, it became clear <laughs> fairly quickly, but at first, I don't think people understood that the passage of time had done nothing to diminish the religious antagonism, the intensity of the religious antagonism in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Uh, you might be thinking as a modern person, you know, that religion is not the be all and the end all anymore. Well, it is there. Uh, the Ulster Protestants still had a siege mentality. They, in their minds, they're still at war, and it's the same war as in 1689. For them, the most important date on the calendar wasn't Christmas or Easter or New Year's. It was July 12th, the anniversary of the Battle of the Boyne and the victory of Protestant King Billy over Catholic <laughs> King James. The The Orange Order... The annual bonfires and parades. Uh, I've been to Northern Ireland and I saw the stacks of of skids and wood for the bonfires. They don't just have bonfires. They have skyscraper 
bonfires. <laughs> like Burning Man kind of thing. Let me, uh, let me quote from James Connolly, the socialist mm-hmm. uh, Irish leader, because he has, he, it's a very, um, he sounds a little bit like Lenin to me, like it's this kind of very wide historical view. So he says, um, you know, I've, the perfectly devilish in, ingenuity of the master class had sought its ends in Northeast Ulster. The lands were stolen from the Catholics, given to Episcopalians, but planted by Presbyterians. The latter were persecuted by the government, but could not avoid the necessity of defending it against the Catholics. And out of this complicated situation, there inevitably grew up a feeling of common interest between the slaves and the slave drivers. So, and then he says, you know, during the closing of the 18th century, it seemed probably that the common disabilities of Presbyterians and Catholics would unite them all under the common name of Irishmen. The rebel society of the time took the significant name of United Irishmen. But the removal of the religious disabilities from the dissenting community had as its effect the obliteration of all political differences between the sects and their practical political unity um, under the common designation of Protestants as against the Catholics upon whom the fetters of religious disability still clung. And then he goes on and says... You know, the Protestants who had been persecuted joined with the Protestants who had persecuted them against the menace of an intrusion by the Catholics into the fold of political and religious freedom. There's no use blaming them. It's common experience in history that as each order fought its way upward into the circle of governing classes, it joined with its former tyrants in an endeavor to curb the aspirations of those orders still unfree. So that's an interesting kind of analysis. Uh, from Connolly. Okay. Well, I find some, uh, again, some interesting connections to our own era. Mm-hmm. Uh, the slogans are really simple, <laughs> really simple. Some of them yeah. make no sense, yeah. but they're they're powerful nonetheless. So for, for Northern Ireland Protestants, home rule meant Rome rule. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Randolph Churchill said this back in 1886, Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. And F.E. Smith, uh, an an MP at this time, the fate of this Home Rule Bill will not be determined in this House of Commons. It will be determined in the streets of Belfast. So that's Um, a threat. These are all like basically all physical threats. Well, I think it, it was meant to be just rhetoric uh, to stir up their supporters. Mm. But of course, <laughs> it, it went much further than that. And Bonner Law, he didn't just support the Ulster Unionists. Yeah. He understood them because he was one of them. Absolutely. So Shock talks about, uh, quote, obstinate belligerence. Mm. And he uses the term for both Ulster Protestants and Bonner Law. The emphasis uh, here is going to be on the rights of the Protestant minority, uh, conveniently forgetting that in Ulster, the Catholics have been a minority for centuries. So but now it's, you know, it's our rights that are at stake. So there was a rally in July of 1912 while the Home Rule Bill was being debated in the House. Bonner Law made a speech. I can imagine no length of resistance to which Ulster can go in which I would not be prepared to support them, and which, in my belief, they would not be supported by the overwhelming majority of the British people. So, in other words, go ahead, 
you know, do whatever you want and yeah. we'll support you. Isn't that sedition? Absolutely. Are you allowed to say that? Yeah. The Ulster Protestants had their own leaders and spokesmen. Uh, Sir Edward Carson was probably the key figure. He was uh, at the time called the uncrowned king of Ulster. There's a lot of uh, kings. Yeah, in, they, uh, they named the the Parnell that too, right? Yep. And yep. On the other side. On the top of the and Carson was later Attorney General of England and Wales and First Lord of the Admiralty. So he's not just an Ulster Protestant. He's a key figure in the in the uh, conservative establishment. Uh, Captain James Craig was an, uh, an organizer who helped create an army in, in Northern Ireland. By the summer of 1912, the Orange Lodges were already practicing military drill. And in the fall... Well, here comes the covenant. So the covenant is a solemn pledge, which was signed by more than half a million uh, men and women. And they pledged themselves as loyal subjects of his gracious majesty, King George V, to use all means necessary to defeat the present conspiracy to set up home rule and to refuse to recognize its authority. So they're making a conspiracy, <laughs> and they're and they're uh, yeah. They're the government is conspiring way, to pass a law. They're calling it a a way to defeat a conspiracy, but right. it's actually them that's making the conspiracy, right? Well, and think of the terminology of the British Parliament. It's they weren't referred to as the Liberal government. It's His Majesty's government, right? And and the guys on the other side are his majesty's loyal opposition. Well, apparently they're not. Well, okay, so they're making a distinction. We're loyal to his majesty, but we refuse to obey his majesty's government. Yeah, that's not how loyal. <laughs> that's not No, what that's loyal that's means. the medieval <laughs> trick. You remember all the yeah. revolutions we've covered? The trick is to say we love the king, we just hate his ministers and his advisors. advisors. Yeah. Right? If only he was getting better advice. Yeah, so this is uh, worse than sedition. This is actually treason. So in January of 1913, they set up the Ulster Volunteer Force. They had 100,000 men organized into military units. Uh, Lord Roberts, another one of your favorites, the commander-in-chief during the Boer War, who had served in the Indian Mutiny in Abyssinia in Afghanistan. Well, he's still around, and he recommends Lieutenant General Sir George Richardson to command this Ulster Volunteer Force. By the end of the year, this force had been trained to the point that they were—they're an army. The only thing they're missing is is weapons, and that's going to come. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, if you are training an army, who who are they going to fight against? Civil war. It's a civil war army. Yeah, you're going to be fighting against the you know legitimate forces of the crown. So ah, the bill passed. It was sent to the House of Lords, where it was immediately rejected. And by the new rules, Asquith is confident, time is on our side. By the new rules, he only has to pass it in two more sessions, and then the House of Lords can no longer reject it. So the Conservative leaders, you know, they, they can see this coming. So now they appeal to the king. They know that his personal views are, are much the same as their own. Letters and petitions are pouring in, asking the monarch to use his royal prerogative. 
Bonner Law told King George that the royal veto wasn't dead and that whatever he did, half of his subjects would think that he had acted against them. So in other words, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Why not do what you in your heart believe? So this is... Yeah, many people forget this. The the passage of a bill has to go through the House of Commons, the House of Lords, and then it has to be signed by the monarch. So effectively, the king or queen, if they refuse to sign, yeah, can can block a bill. It just never happens. Because, they never do it, yeah, because yeah. it's the constitution. But it's still it. there. I mean, there's a there's a possibility that in future the king would just refuse to sign, and now your bill doesn't pass. It's the same in in uh, Canada. The governor general has yeah. to sign the bill for it to become law. We've just, you know, not had a governor general refuse all that often. Right. Now, as <laughs> That's with a this short road to becoming a republic, probably <laughs> if they if they if start that, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the king got better advice, uh, and he had enough common sense on his own to know that. He would be much better, you know, staying in the middle and mediating between the two sides. Uh, Asquith feels the same. So he met with Bonner Law three times in private and in secret. But the talks were inconclusive. Surprise? Not really. Well, I mean, it, it went, the way that Asquith said we're getting on with the new system or something, it's like there is a way that English politics works through these kinds of compromises because everybody understands that they're all in the same class and they're all on the same side and bonner law is breaking that like that's what that's what ulster is about right they're sort of breaking that and they're like we're not going to play this game and the government of the time is a little bit behind so they still think they're bluffing maybe and maybe they are still bluffing so well, there's we, this kind of brinkmanship and there's also this like maybe we can use Ulster uh, to to, you know, dilute the, the Irish home rule demands and so on. So it's a trick. Right. It, there's a change in the, the tenor of the conversation. Yeah. But it's more than that. It's the substance. Yeah. And they're actually mobilizing uh, for military action. Right. Well, I, I just mean in, in terms of debate in Parliament. Yeah. So in the Gladstone era, you would give impassioned or, or very clever speeches trying to persuade the members on the other side yes. to come to your point of view. And it was all very gentlemanly. And they, you know, they had their turn in power. And then the other side has their turn in power. And you and Gladstone's party split over it because the members go where their hearts or consciences lead them. But this yeah. is not you know, trying to persuade. This is simply saying no. Yeah. No way. Block. Yeah. Right. And so the Bonner, system is sorry, just one last point. The system is such the system isn't made for that. So it's not made to overcome people who are trying to block. It just kind of freezes when when you get that kind of rejectionist block in the government. It's what led to the uh, the Parliamentary Act. It's yeah. why the House of Lords had to be tamed. But now the Conservatives are replacing uh you know the the blocking role of the house of lords has now come into other fields so bonner law knows he can't stop the home rule bill in parliament and he can't stop it by going to the king and carson had told 
the conservative leader, that opposition to Irish home rule was fading everywhere except Ulster. People in Britain are getting used to the idea, right? It's going to happen. You know, I don't like it, but I'm getting used to the idea, but not in Ulster. At this point, Ulster's out of control. They're not going to obey and they're prepared to fight. So what's going to happen when Bonner Law is called on to honor all of the promises he's made? That's right. All of that tough talk. Yeah. Now what? And Asquith is no better off. I mean, he'd hoped that time would cool the passions, which, you know, is what happened everywhere but Ulster. But it's only inflamed them. And now in the rest of Ireland, Irish Catholics seeing what the Ulster Protestants are doing, well, they're going to do the same. They, they're beginning to drill to form military units. That's going to put pressure on Redmond and the IPP. It's going to make it harder for anybody to compromise or, or make a sacrifice. So at, at this point, the question is, is there any way to avoid a civil war? Asquith is working on concessions, and Bonnerlaw is going to try one more and run, right? He's going to try one more way to go around uh, Parliament. So he proposed that the House of Lords make an amendment to uh, the Annual Army Act Mm -hmm. to exclude the use of the army in Ulster. Yeah. So, yeah, House of Lords pass a law that the army can't be used in Ulster. Okay, well, that would have been like pouring oil on a fire. March 9th, 1914. So if you notice the date, that that comes into play as well. Uh, Asquith announced that the Home Rule Bill would be amended so that any county in Ireland could vote itself out of Home Rule for six years. And, And in his mind, this is a major concession. Sir Edward Carson's reply, delivered with scorn, we do not want a sentence of death with a stay of execution for six years. <laughs> yeah, I saw that quote too. Yep. Yeah. Sentence of death. Really? So the Liberal cabinet set up a committee to work out what what to do. There's a new Secretary of War for War, Seeley, and Churchill, as First Lord of the Admiralty, took the lead. Churchill made a speech on March 14th. He described the Ulster Provisional Government as a treasonable conspiracy which it was. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What else would you call it? And he declared that there were worse things than bloodshed, even on an extended scale. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No surprise. Churchill has strong words. He's ready for bloodshed. (laughs) Yeah. He's he's saying force will be met with force. Yeah. Let us go forward together and put these grave matters to the test. Yeah, exactly. So, so there, there, there's a group in the in the cabinet that's just like, you want to threaten us, then we're going to do the same thing that we would do with anybody who threatened civil war, which is right. repression. And but then there's a soft. There's also a, a probably a bigger group that wants to soft pedal it. Right. That wants. Yeah. To, yeah. Yeah. And they're I, worried about splitting the army, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Seely's the the secretary for war, and well, okay. So army officers are predominantly unionist in outlook, and there were quite a few army officers who were Ulstermen themselves, 
And for months now, they've been discussing what to do if they're ordered to lead troops into Northern Ireland to force the acceptance of home rule. And, and this committee knows it. So they gave uh, direct instructions to Sir Arthur Paget, commander in chief in Ireland. He was to secure the arms depot and the ammunition, uh, the arsenals and all of that in Ulster. And he was to move two battalions of infantry close to the border of Ulster. He was promised reinforcements and told that a squadron of modern battleships would be sent to provide assistance. So Paget asked for clarification. What about the officers whose sympathies are with Ulster? And he was told that Ulster uh, officers would be allowed to disappear for a while and that other officers who refused to obey orders would be dismissed. Well, that's just sensible, right? Why would you send a guy from Ulster to, yeah. to you know, uh, take control of Ulster? To repress, yeah, to repress his Ulster countrymen. Right. The, the Austro-Hungarian Empire has figured that out <laughs> long yeah. hundreds of years before. Yeah, it, it's, that's pretty simple common sense. Uh, but then again, other officers who refuse to obey, you dismiss them. Yeah. Uh, but Paget didn't get anything in, in writing. And then he went and did something stupid. Mm -hmm. He went back to Ireland. He went to the Curra. This is the, the main military base in County Kildare, southeast of Dublin. And he briefed his officers. The briefing confused everybody. Rather than, you know, clarifying things, he just muddied the waters and, and left most of them believing that they had to choose between dismissal or moving north. Brigadier General Goff, and I know that name from later in the war, we, we might meet him again later. Uh, Brigadier General Goff and 57 other officers stated that they preferred dismissal. So this is known as the, the Kurach Mutiny. They're, they're refusing to obey orders in advance. If you nice. order us to do this, we, we will quit. And when the news reached London, it created a sensation. A sensation for the Liberal government. Because the Unionists and the Ulster leaders already knew. They were told directly by Sir Henry Wilson, who is the, the Director of Military Operations. And throughout the crisis, Wilson... Uh, Roberts, the old commander, and General French, all three, were leaking information to the press. Th this is also treason. This is all so treasonous, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? And these are the guys, you know, th th who... Oh, I can just picture them <laughs> kissing the flag, right? Yeah, absolutely. Asquith immediately took steps to, to backtrack. Like, wait, 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 wait. We're not ordering you to go north. The, the naval orders were countermanded, and Goff and two of his colonels were summoned to London. And they requested a written statement of what was going to, you know, what they were going to be ordered to do and what would happen if they refused. So the cabinet had to write up a memo defining the relationship between the military and the civil power. <laughs> I mean, shouldn't you have worked this out before? <laughs> like centuries before. <laughs> At the end of it, Seeley 
and this is entirely on his own initiative, added a paragraph to the memorandum stating that the government have no intention of taking advantage of this right to crush political opposition to the policy or the principles of the Home Rule Bill. Um, this isn't political opposition, Mr. Seeley. Yeah. This is this is treason and open mutiny. So Maurice Schock says this was the last episode in a story of incredible bungling and mismanagement. Yeah. Seeley resigned, and Asquith took over as Minister for War uh, himself. At this point, the two sides are now so divided by suspicion and hostility that rational communication between them had become virtually impossible. And let's be clear, the two sides is Ulster and the government, not Ulster and the Irish nationalist movement, right? No, no. It, yeah. It's the government versus <laughs> yeah. Ulster supported by yeah. the, the conservatives and unionists. Yeah. The Ulster leaders uh, believed that the government had been about to launch what they called a pogrom. The Times of London, their front page read, The Plot That Failed. And they described a deliberate policy to provoke and intimidate Ulster. Oh, so the Times was on that side. Oh, yeah. Now, even the most extreme liberals have to back down and and say, wait, we only wanted to take, uh, you know, precautionary measures. (laughs) On the 24th of April, the Ulster Volunteers landed 25,000 rifles and 3 million rounds of ammunition in Northern Ireland. Of course, you know, customs officials and police looked the other way while this stuff was unloaded and distributed. A few days later, the opposition moved a motion of censure on the government. Churchill got off another good line. He said it was uncommonly like a vote of censure by the criminal classes on the police. <laughs> That's right. I mean, you know, I uh, I, I don't want to use the, I don't want to, I hate to say it, but uh, I, I agree with Churchill. Yeah, he That's gets off some. He'll never... Write that down, everybody, because you're not going to hear that <laughs> very much again. So according to Shock, <clears throat> Ulster was now armed and the government was disarmed. Asquith yeah. knows his position is weak. There is there is no hope of reasoning with Sir Edward Carson. So Asquith now tries to get Redmond and the IPP to sacrifice to swallow the exclusion of Ulster, not temporarily, but permanently. Which is eventually going to be the solution, right? I mean, yeah, that's that's the that's the status quo today, right? Well, yeah, but first it's going to split the Catholic Irish because Redmond's most extreme followers say, let's just do what Ulster's doing. Let's adopt the same belligerent tactics. You know, let's drill, arm ourselves, say absolutely no and refuse. Yeah. And. Redmond is, he's leaning towards accepting the sacrifice. But there, you know, there's there's another stumbling block. How do you define the area to be excluded? Mm -hmm. The unionists want all of Ulster. 
That's nine <laughs> nine counties. <laughs> right. And in those nine counties, if you count everybody up, there's a Catholic majority. So a future uh, local government of Ulster could democratically vote to unite with Ireland. Unless the Ulster people figure out a way to maybe get rid of some of those Irish people from those counties, encourage them gently to move mm. or something. Is that Well, you're, yeah, your two solutions little... are first, not to have any democracy, which they're yeah. quite comfortable with. Sure. Uh, or second, yeah, some kind of some ethnic cleansing or demographic engineering, <laughs> as, they, right. as they call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Let, let's redraw some boundaries here. So Redmond is, comes back. And says, okay, there are four counties that make up the Protestant core. Protestants are a majority there. Uh, you know, the Catholic min- minority can either choose to remain there or they could move, I guess. But, you know, not all of Ulster, just those four. So there was a conference at Buckingham Palace to work it out. And Asquith came up with a solution, I guess. Any county in Ulster would be allowed to opt for exclusion by plebiscite. So any county with a Protestant majority or any county where the Protestants can manipulate the vote by fraud or violence. So that could happen, too. So now we want democracy, right? <laughs> we, have a, we have a plebiscite. It's going to be solved through a plebiscite now. Yeah. And we will, of course, cheat. Uh, on the 26th of July, 26th of July, 1914, the Irish National Volunteers landed weapons at Howth near Dublin. Uh, and as they were, you know, carrying the weapons inland, uh, they were blocked by British troops. A crowd gathered uh, supporting the the, the, peop- the the volunteers, and there was a uh, a fracas. Uh, three killed, 38 injured. So apparently the soldiers were prepared to intervene. Just only on one side. <laughs> yeah. And I don't yeah. know if you noticed the date, July 26th, 1914. Almost a month to the day after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie at Sarajevo. Um at, by July 26th, World War One is is looming. So the whole question of Ireland is going to be shelved, including by us. Until well, we kind of have to. In, <laughs> in September of 1914, the Home Rule Bill passed, but it, it was accompanied by a promise that it would. It would not be put into effect until after the war and that it would not be passed without amendment. So home rule is done. Yeah. Frozen. But it's. Yeah, it's on. It's going to happen. So the question, you know, kind of remains to be answered. Could there have been a civil war? The ultra yeah. Protestants were ready to fight. It certainly looked like, but they didn't have to. They they got what they wanted, and the nationalists had been forced to give ground uh, multiple times. Would they have accepted, you know, the amputation of of Northern Ireland? Uh, 
Short term, maybe, but not not medium or long term. No, no. So. But it was actually the liberals who were who were defeated. They had been openly defied by a small armed minority uh, allied to His Majesty's mm-hmm. loyal opposition. If Asquith actually believed that Ulster had a good case, he he could have conceded it early. Yeah, he he could have just told Redmond, well, you're going to have to accept the settlement. Instead, he yeah, he vacillated and he lost. Yeah, uh, I tend to agree with Maurice Shock. He thought it was unlikely that any settlement could have prevented bloodshed. Uh, the feuds were too deep, too bitter. And people were too ready to reach for a gun, which both sides. Yeah. 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 Powder keg. So I, I did a lot of reading. I think we, I mentioned at the very beginning that everything that I, when you put, when I started going over your notes to put in my notes, a lot of what you had written, I had already a lot, a lot of what I had planned to put in, you had already written Mm -hmm. the stuff that I didn't add to this i think we will get into when we come back to 1916 because there's like the literary revival there's the nationalism there's the there's a whole debate there's a lot of discussion about anglo-irish literature there versus the interest in reviving the irish language Mm -hmm. so there's all kinds of things that are going on in ireland that are also going on everywhere, right? Like Korea or elsewhere in Asia or whatever, like this kind of literary nationalist movement and how to express it politically and how to fight the imperialists and they're too strong. So we will, we will get back to all of those kinds of discussions when we come back for 1916. Mm-hmm. Um, but the net for now, I've been studying, I'll give you guys a preview because the next one is, is going to be about the gold standard. I started with Carl Polanyi, but I've been reading the gold. When you talk about the gold standard and currencies and stuff, Dave, you get into, um, it's like mainstream economics doesn't touch money. They sort of say that money's nothing, there's nothing special about money. <laughs> so what ends up happening is the people who believe in and the importance of money in the economy are mostly like considered or mostly let's just say they're outside of the mainstream, which can lead to certain difficulties in, uh, for example, determining what is what you might call quackery (laughs) versus what might be what you might call legitimate um, and, uh, and well thought out. So I've been, I've been deep in both of those kinds of literatures. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> and trying to i think i have i think i'm ready to uh to give you <laughs> a, a solid uh evaluation of, of what the gold what the importance of the gold standard was uh in and the going off of it and so on was in world wars looking forward to it mm-hmm.